Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's Sermon Podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn from God's Word in the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. We pray that God's Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Well, welcome to the first ever recording of our service through video. I've got to be honest, I hear the camera adds 10 to 15 pounds. I have honestly about 15 pounds that I was already a little over I wanted to be. So I, I guess mathematically I'm about 25 to 30 pounds heavy in this camera. So you should see me in person. I look ripped. Let me, let me pray and let's, let's dig in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways with which we can still communicate together. God, as people are gathered around the country in smaller groups, in smaller settings, God, I pray you'd be glorified. I pray that these words would not fall void. I pray that people's hearts would be captivated by what you're teaching. I pray that you would strengthen us and guide us and give us the words. God, as I preach, I pray that all the distractions that could be in place, God, that you would remove those things, that you would help us to... Uh, stay true to your word, even though we have to do it through technology. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has been a long chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and what I wanted to do today is try to capture what we've done in the last four weeks or so over 1 Corinthians 15 through all of the verses and kind of give you a quick review of all of that. I still would encourage, strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast because we are ending chapter 15 today. Uh, we're actually getting near the end of 1 Corinthians as a whole. A couple things that we established in this chapter I want to remind us all of. First off is that the word resurrection has always met and always was understood in the time of Jesus and around the, the time of this writing, both about 200 years before, 200 years after. Everyone believed in resurrection, but when the, or believed that the term resurrection was real. And the term itself, when resurrection was used, always meant a physical body coming back to life in the flesh. When we see Jesus resurrect, he's in the flesh. Yes, he does things that we don't understand, and that's something we talked about last week. But ultimately, he eats, he's hungry, he, he experiences flesh, people can touch him. And so resurrection is, when it talks about in the scripture, is a physical, corporeal body kind of coming back to life. The people in Corinth didn't necessarily believe that. And another thing we established was the word heaven. So often what we, what we realize is that we are looking at heaven in the scriptures, and many of us have adopted kind of a, a Plato thinking where heaven is just a two-step thing. We live this earth here, we spend our time, we do those things, and then we die, and we go to heaven to be with Jesus forever, and that's kind of a two-step phase of what we believe in heaven. That's actually what Plato taught. They taught specifically that the body was evil, the matter was evil, but the spirit was good, and that the body was the prison for the spirit, and that they needed to be separated at death. The body would die and decompose, but the spirit would live on, and that's, that's not what the scriptures talk about. We see the, he the word heaven used two primary ways in scripture. One is the heavens and the earth, the, the sky, the universe. We see that in Genesis and in Revelation. And the other one we see is the heavens. We see it as God's dwelling place. In almost every vision of heaven, we see, we see a picture of God on the throne. Why is God on the throne? Because in heaven, in the heavens, it's where God's will is done. He is over all things. He is on the throne. And ultimately, that is what the new heavens down here, the earth, new heavens, new earth will be, where God's throne comes and dwells with his children. The word heavenly is an adverb that's used 
a ton in the scriptures. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a heavenly body that's used in chapter 15, basically saying that everything that is heavenly is under God's rule or his reign. It's where God's will is done and in his presence. So we see that used all over. In chapter 15 of, of Corinthians, we never see the word heaven pop up. It's always about resurrection. There's a ton of scriptures that talk about the resurrection all over. They call it many different things, but heaven is not one. In popular belief, despite what we see in scripture, is, is this idea that we die here on a physical body and we, we go to a spiritual body, kind of robe, halo, wings, you know, in the clouds with God in some heaven place. And that's what most people think. Again, that's an influence of Plato. The scriptures teach it's a three-part story. We walk this earth. We walk this earth like we talked about last week in a form that looks like Adam. And we, we move forward and we live this life. We can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but ultimately we die. Our bodies are decomposing. Our bodies are breaking down with this huge coronavirus scare and COVID-19 scare. Like we see the susceptibility and the frailty of our bodies and our bodies are going. And ultimately, even though we can experience the hope as a child of God today, we still experience the pain and the loss of death until the resurrection. So we, we live this life, we die, we then have our, our, our soul, our body is separated from our decompo- decomposing body. We are with God in heaven. We see that in Revelation, but that's not the end of the story. N.T. Wright calls it the life after the life after death, that there's going to be a trumpet sound and Jesus is going to come down and all of us will get resurrected bodies on a new heaven, a renewed, a renewed earth and a renewed body, a body that is fit for is fit for immortality, one that will not in any way, shape, or form decompose or experience death. And so we had to establish that a couple things. One is resurrection is always meant a physical body. Heaven is not that we, our goal is not to die and just live in some heaven. Our goal is ultimately to be with Jesus in heaven today if we die. But ultimately, we're longing and pleading and waiting for the resurrection when Jesus comes and his, and the heavenly body becomes the new heavens and the earth. The throne is open. The gates are open. We can experience walking on this life and this earth with every one of his followers in perfect unity. And so this whole section of Scripture, the whole book, chapters 5 through 9, kind of talk about our physical body, our personal body, what we aren't to do. And it, it seems like it's a list of do's and don'ts, but what we established way back in chapters 5 through 9, that ultimately this is, this is us trying to live true to who we are in the new kingdom. In the new kingdom, we won't have sexual immorality or greed or any of these things. So, so why live with them today? And then chapters 11 through 14 speak about the gathered body. And so we see the individual body and then the, the gathered body. And then chapter 15 talks about the resurrected body. See, the fact that God has stood by his created order implies that his order with mankind and its proper place within it is to be totally restored at last. This message gives meaning and significance to the present life, making it clear that our life on earth is important to God. He has given it its order. It matters that it should conform to the order it has given, especially since he plans to renew it. And so in the chapters, chapters 1 through 11, we established a couple things. First off, he's starting out trying to say, look, the resurrection is in place because there were Corinthian believers that believed in the the resurrection of Christ, but they did not believe in the resurrection of believers. And so he's, he's trying to establish what would happen, what would change if we deny the resurrection. What are the things that would miss if we deny the resurrection? So his first kind of order of business in chapter 1 through 11 is to just state 
all the reasons why we can know the resurrection is true. He goes through according to scriptures, and then he goes through all the many eyewitnesses ultimately leading up to his own eyewitness of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And then in that section, we establish that really ultimately the gospel itself has three purposes in our life. The purpose that it's going to save us, right? So we've been, we've been saved from the punishment of sin in our following the Lord. It's saving us. It's making us more like Christ today. It has present-day implications, and ultimately it will save us from death into resurrection. And then moving on into chapter into verses 12 through 23, he establishes this idea that Jesus is the first fruits. He uses a, a farming idea where everyone understood that first fruits was kind of derived from the Old Testament where it denotes whatever you've had in crop or, or any of those things, it was meant to be given to God in thankfulness. And so ultimately Jesus is the first fruits of a crop that the rest of us will come. So if he's the first fruits, what we can look at and say that if he resurrected, then those of his followers are the harvest to follow. We will be the ones that will follow Jesus in this process because he resurrected, we're going to resurrect. And so ultimately, he's the first fruits. We are the rest of the harvest to come after it. And we do so because Jesus first did it. We're becoming like Jesus. And then in chapter, in verses 24 through 34, the apostle Paul, inspired by God, did this brilliant thing where he, from Psalm 8, which speaks of man's authority over creation, and Psalm 110, which talks about the Messiah being the priest and the king, he melds those both, and instead of applying Psalm 8 to Adam, like it was man, he puts Jesus in place of that. This was a super confusing week. I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to it, but essentially what he's doing, he's showing that Jesus is the perfect man, and the perfect Messiah. God brilliantly uses psalms, these, these quotes of these psalms, to speak of Jesus in place of us. And it's in Psalm 110 that it says that God's original intent for humans was to live under God's rule and to rule over the earth. What we horribly failed at, God completes in Jesus. Jesus restores God's original plan. He lives under the authority of God and the rules over the world as human. In Jesus, God is saving the world. And that's what we establish in verses 34 through, or 24 through 34. And then in verses 35 through 49, last week, we, he, we see him use a ton of metaphors. The idea of a seed that needs to, to be buried and, and broken apart or sown. And this idea that, that sown comes into our bodies being this way. Saying, look, if there is a resurrection, he answers the question of what will our resurrected bodies look like? And this is what we talked about last week. And he says, kind of goes through two different things. The body that we are in right now is sown in corruptibility, but the body is raised in incorruptibility. So he's saying, look, what's, what is corrupt, meaning we can see the corruption in our bodies, in our flesh. That's not hard for us to, to witness. Same thing, the body that we're in right now is sown in dishonor, meaning it's, it's dishonorable what we can and can't do, and, and it's dishonorable to die, but the body will be raised in honor or glory and splendor. And then the body that's sown in weakness right now, we will be raised in power. The body that's sown is, is natural, and the body that's that is raised is spiritual. Now, real quickly, just to establish what we talked about there again, the natural body, the idea behind this term is, is the soul. It's the body that's animated by the soul. So our physical body is empowered, animated by the soul. It can also mean our energy. And spiritual has always meant, in the New Testament, when you see the word spiritual, it always means animated by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is that our actual bodies will, will look 
different and they won't be empowered not only just indwelt by the spirit but instead our physical body as well will be animated by the holy spirit we'll have the power of god over our entire physical body not just our internal soul and so then he goes on and talks about how the last adam or a name for jesus and the first adam he's saying look the first adam was animated by the soul the second adam jesus is animated by the holy spirit and the resurrection He has a heavenly body, a body that is under the rule of God. It is made for to be imperishable, to be immortal, to be incorruptible, to to be sown or to be sown in glory or to be to be raised in glory and honor. And he says that this is a body that will be under the rule and reign of God in God's presence. We spend these lives in bodies that reflect Adam's state after the fall, and we will spend the rest of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, in a body that reflects the second Adam, or Jesus, after the resurrection. So this is everything that's been established in in the rest of chapter 15. I cannot encourage you enough to go back and listen to it, because that was a really fast kind of jump through what we were going over, and I really, really, really would recommend you to go back and listen to that. With all of that covered, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. We're going to look at just a a couple verses at a time. I'm going to start here, verse 50 of chapter 15. He says this, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, must clothe themselves in the perishable. And this mortal body must put on, must clothe themselves on immortality. Okay, this section of scripture is just beautiful. He's kind of coming to the end of resurrection and all the things that we've established of why, what would happen if we didn't believe in the resurrection and how everything would be done in vain and pointless. And he comes to here and just like in Romans 8, 19-23, Paul makes it clear that our resurrection is tied in with the restoration and the renew- renewal of all of creation. It's, it's everything of the rest of creation. And so he comes and says, look, flesh and blood, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood is a Jewish idiom for a human being with a strong emphasis on transient character or short-sightedness or moral weakness. The body you have right now, we established this last week, the body that you and I live in right now is not fit for the new heavens and the new earth. We can't inherit these bodies. It wouldn't make sense for us to live forever in a body that is decomposing. We need a new body. We need a new way. And so he goes on in verse 51, he says, look, our our bodies aren't fit. They aren't fit this way. And so then in verse 51, he talks about this idea, I tell you a mystery. This this word mystery is like, hey, something that's that's hard for us to understand on normal knowledge, but, but when we take in the Spirit, this is what he's telling us here. He says, look, the question may be asked, okay, well, if we're going to get an imperishable body, if, if somehow our bodies that are that are decomposing, that are buried in the ground, that bugs and, and animals eat, and then they kind of go out and, and they they the excrement of them were coming out, like somehow God's going to put that body back together. If that's going to happen, what about the people that are still alive when this trumpet sounds? What's going to happen with them? Like, are they going to be like, oh, sorry, you didn't die and it can't happen? So he answers this question. He says, I tell you the mystery. Listen, we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He says, but we shall all be changed in a moment, 
in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. This last trumpet is in reference, you see it in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the trumpet that sounded before Jesus comes down to conquer all things. It's in this last moment. He says, in a twinkling of an eye, as fast as, peep, as, as we can possibly see. Twinkling of an eye is like a short teeny bit of time. It's the smallest unit of measure. It's a, like a shortest time necessary to cast a glance. He's saying in an instant, those who are dead will have resurrected bodies and those that are still living when Jesus comes will be changed. Some scholars use this to talk about the rapture. Again, not saying neither hear anything about the rapture, but I don't think that's what this text is getting at, but that's a whole nother topic. Ultimately, what he's saying here, and he says, look, the clothing of the imperishable. We will be clothed of imperishable. We will put on the imperishable. We will put on immortality. We will be changed in an instant. It's a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture saying, look, the physical body, whether you're alive when Jesus comes back or you've already died when Jesus comes back, you will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, so moving on in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This is such a beautiful section of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, again inspired by God, quotes two sets of Scripture. He quotes Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13, 14, but he kind of modifies the Hosea one just a little bit to make his point. The quote from Hosea 13, 14 shows that the sting of death that's mentioned in Hosea has to do with sin. So the sting that we experience, it's, it's the sin, the, the sting of death in our life is sin. And it points out that the law ended up reinforcing the power of sin and death over human lives, meaning the law shows us this. This is full in Romans. We do not have time to go back there, but he uses an eschatological or end times interpretation in his use of Hosea, and it's just, it's beautiful. Turning a text that's written about judgment into one declaring salvation, for we are now not under the law, and the resurrection of Christ signals the beginning of a new age of redemption. One scholar says it this way. He says, Paul projects an eschatological vision of a stingless death precisely because Jesus Christ has himself absorbed the sting on the basis of how his death and resurrection addresses the problem of human sin and the law. Interpreting the passage from the perspective of the resurrection of Christ, Paul turns the summons to death into a taunt. He's taunting death. It's like, where's your sting? Where's your victory now? We're going to be resurrected with Christ. It's just, it's beautiful. And then we see that death is vanquished by the resurrection. Paul supports this assertion with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. This verse is part of an oracle of salvation which envisions God's universal salvation for all people or all nations and the ultimate destruction of the power of death. Through the resurrection of the dead, Death has been robbed of victory. What seemed for all these years to be a victory for death, the fact that we were dying, is undone in a flash because we are going to be resurrected with Christ. It has been swallowed up. Death, death has been swallowed up. There's nothing left of it. It's like a picture of an, of an animal swallowing up a whole other animal. There's nothing left. It's gone. And God's victory over it all and all of its enemies as well. See, this is... This is why we can say that, that death is the last enemy to defeat. This is the last enemy that you and I, as followers of Jesus today, need to be defeated because ultimately all of us are still experiencing the grievous and the horrible loss of death. 
And ultimately, this is the last enemy. This is it. This is the way it's supposed to go. To say that death is anything other than an enemy is to deny the goodness, the beauty, and the power of God. God's good creation. The point of resurrection is that it is the complete defeat of death. One scholar says it this way. He says, until the resurrection, until the resurrection, death is still the enemy of man. Even for Christians, it violates our dominion of God's creation. It breaks love relationships. It disrupts families and causes great grief and the loss of those dear to us. We no longer need to fear death, but it still invades and torments us while we are mortal. He goes on and says, This chapter starts with Christ paying the penalty for sin and moves to the destruction of all of God's enemies, including the presence and the power in our lives and death itself, the last enemy, which is both the result of sin and the great promoter of sin. On the last day, believers will find themselves both innocent of the guilt of sin and free of the power and the presence of sin. Come on, this is awesome. This chapter is ultimately about the execution of God's plan secured by Christ's death and resurrection and guaranteed by his continuing reign and ultimate destruction of his enemies to bring about the complete renewal of humanity and creation. Not only will the ultimate death, the ultimate enemy death be destroyed, but every trace, every trace of its causes and consequences. Listen to me. Everything will be gone. Every one of its allies and partners will be removed. This is why it's so important for us as Christians to keep the right perspective around death today. I've heard many Christians at times say, I can't believe God allowed this death. Well, he doesn't allow it. He resurrects. He's not okay with it. Death is the enemy. We don't, we don't celebrate death. Yes, to be with Christ is to gain, but to live is Christ. We, we understand that there's, there's more beyond death, but death is still a picture. It's a reminder that this world is broken in need of his sovereign rule over every aspect of it, where everything is under him, proclaiming him as God. We know that death is the enemy. And sin and death are partners. They're together in this. There's, where there's sin, there's death. Where there's death, there's sin. And ultimately, for God to be completely victory, or victorious, he has to completely undo death, which is what happens in the resurrection of all believers. It's what happens to us in the resurrection. This is what we were talking about a few weeks ago. This is the resurrection, the new heavens and earth, where we're, where we're toiling in, in soil and we're, we're working, but, but it's good and it brings glory to God. And we're walking with every other believer in perfect unity. We, we fully know God as he fully knows us. Death has to be defeated entirely for that to happen. And when Christ went to the cross, into the tomb, and out of that tomb, he was the first fruits. Look at, look at what verse 57 says. But thanks be to God, but, but glory, but grace, but goodness be to God who gives us the victory. How do we have this victory? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have a victory. We don't have to worry about this anymore. We don't have to, to, to wrestle with the, the pain of this world without hope because we know that ultimately, no matter what death or sin brings to this body, that this body will be resurrected through victory because of the harvest to follow the first fruits of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Verse 58 finally gets us to application of this chapter. I've been saying every week for the last five weeks that this is a 
Application light week, application light week, application light week. We finally get to what I believe the application, the purpose, the point, the, the kind of the driving force behind understanding the longest chapter in Corinthians, the, one of the longest chapters on resurrection in the Bible. The end point is what he gets to here, and it's verse 58. It's just beautiful. Look what he says. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. To say that our labor is not in vain is ultimately to say that our labor will be fully rewarded. He's saying, look, here's the thing. In light of the fact that, yes, what you're living in today is is a body that images and bears the, the likeness of Adam, but knowing that ultimately you can steward this body, you can steward this earth, you can live here today where everything you do is not in vain. He used this term vain over and over again. He said, if the resurrection isn't real, then our preaching's in vain. Then your faith is in vain. He comes back to this idea. It's, it's, it's heedless. It's pointless. But he's saying, look, your labor is not pointless. On the contrary, your labor has immense and powerful meaning behind it. The, the first two terms here are synonyms. They're basically, when he says to be steadfast and immovable, it's, it's saying the same thing, essentially, that, that we mean to be firmly or solidly in place. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Don't let yourself be cowering away in fear like some maybe today because of, the, of what's going on. Instead, stand firm. Be immovable. Know ultimately that we are here. And he gives us the motivation to stand firm. He goes on and says the third part kind of clarifies the manner with which we are to stand firm. How are we supposed to stand firm? How are we supposed to remain steadfast and immovable? By our constant involvement of the work of the Lord. You want to stand, be steadfast and immovable? Then give yourselves to the work of the Lord. Give yourselves to the things that God commands of us in his scriptures. Submit yourselves entirely to what he is asking of you and here, knowing that it is good and it'll be rewarded and beyond the rewards, it's who we are going to be in the resurrection anyway. So why not live true to it today? You and I have an application. We get to understand that, that ultimately to be steadfast means that we don't move. I, I stuck on this word steadfast and I reminded me of, of a couple of scriptures in James that I just want to read real quickly because I feel like it adds a lot of validity to our current circumstances, what's going on with COVID-19, and also just life in general. Because let's be honest, before COVID-19 showed up, life was hard. Life was difficult. There's still broken marriages, broken relationships. There's still death and, and, and pain and, and physical bodies getting tired and old. And, and we see that ultimately that death and sin, it's just, it's still hard. But look what James does with the same word steadfast. He says in, in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Now this word trials of various kind, are, it, it's trials that are put on you. It's trials that come at you. So it's not something that you did. It's not you're doing. So, similar to like this, maybe this, this virus thing. It's, it's a trial that's being put on you. He says, consider it pure joy. Okay. I'll, I'll hang with you for a second. James, let me understand this a little more. For you know what? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See that? Look at this. The trials you're experiencing produces the fact, the very thing that he says that we are to do, to be immovable to plant firm, to not move, to steadfastness. The trials that you're in, this difficulty you're going through right now is producing an immovable spirit that hopefully in the manner with which you're immovable would be working out in always, in all ways, always abounding in the work 
of the Lord. He goes on and says, and let that steadfastness have its full effect. Look at this. The immovability, the, the, the planting, the firm foundation that you have, its full effect. What's its full effect? That you may be perfect and complete. That you be finished, lacking in nothing. Look at this. He goes on a little bit further. James uh, James. 12, just down, talks about a bunch of other things. I'd encourage you to read all of James. It's amazing. But right further down, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I mean, under trial is meaning to not squirm out. Blessed, blessed is the person that doesn't run from trials. Blessed is the person that remains under that pressure because it's producing what? Steadfastness. And he says, the person that remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, when he was finished, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised those who love him. That's verse 12 of James. See, difficulties, guys, difficulties are worth enduring because they produce something. And what they're producing is exactly what we are going to get, what we're commanded to do and live in this world prior to the resurrection. It's to, to abound in the work of the Lord, always abounding. That word always, it means always not sometimes, to always abound in the work of the Lord. That means that every single thing we do, whether we are self-quarantined or quarantined or free to run wherever we want or we can travel wherever we want or we can work, whatever we are, if we're in our office or our office is at home with our kids, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because it's not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. See, if we line ourselves, we, if we stay true to, to who Jesus is in our life, not just in what he saved us from and not just in what he's saving us to, but if we stay true to who he's going to be, that ultimately he's coming, that he's going to come back and he's going to resurrect our bodies, then we see that there's value to living in light of that today. There's value to living as a someone that is going to be resurrected today, not just escaping this reality and, and hoping for that, but no, living, toiling, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Since Christ has been raised bodily, we too will one day be physically transformed. Therefore, we should remain unswervingly committed to orthodox theology. We should, we should not let ourselves be tossed by culture or thinking any other way. We should, be, we should be just committed to it because we know ultimately that we will be and completely dedicate to the work of the gospel. We should be so dedicated to the work of gospel, knowing this. The purity of living and the faithful exercise of our distinctive avenues of service, no matter what the cost in this life, we can count on the ultimate triumph of all God's people and all his purposes. That's how one scholar said it. It's just brilliant. Our, our, our theology is, is valuable. Our, our practice, our, our exercising of the work of the Lord is, is wonderful. It, it has a point. It's on purpose. So we can grieve. Like I said last week, we can grieve, but we grieve as those that have a hope. We can experience difficulties and trials because we know that ultimately these trials are not pointless. These trials have a purpose. They're, they're planting ourselves firmer so that we can always abound, so that the manner with which we're planted in our understanding of who Jesus is and what God's plan of renewing all things is, we can live today solid, walking, ground, hard ground, going, I can work for the Lord, and everything I do is not in vain. This whole chapter serves as a call to faithful Christian service in the assurance that comes from the resurrection, the assurance that sacrifice made for Christ and his kingdoms are not made in vain, but will be richly 
rewarded in the fullness of kingdom. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2 through 3. says, looking to Jesus, telling us, like this is after we've laid down all the sin that's entangled us and all that stuff. We run this race with endurance. He says, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, God, Jesus was focused on the resurrection, even to the cross. And he says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He goes on in verse 3, So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look, he's encouraging us to not grow weary. Church, don't grow weary. I don't care how long this self-quarantine takes. I don't care how long we can't be in the same room together. Do not grow weary. Push through, focusing on the fact that you will despise the shame and death in the victory of Christ and the resurrection. Keep yourself fixed on this because we are to consider him who, through the sinners, people that he created, beating him and spitting on him and mocking him and hanging him on that cross. He endured it all for the joy, the joy that was set before us. Another verse, again, it can be so easy to get weary and exhausted and faint-hearted doing the work of the Lord, but I'm telling you right now, this reality of resurrection tells us that we are to continue to give ourselves tirelessly to the work of the Lord. It's literally the labor word heard here is to be spent for the Lord. Galatians 6, 9, 10 says this. It says, and let us not grow weary. Again, of what? Of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. Now, grow weary of doing not good. Some of you are really weary because you're not good. You're selfish. You're doing things for yourself. I've done this so many times. I find myself getting tired because I'm doing things for my, my own selfish desires. I'm doing things so that people might like me. I'm not doing good. I'm not doing good that the, the work of the labor, the labor of the Lord. But you go, he says, doing good. For in due season, we will reap. There's that harvest idea. If we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity. This means today, if you have an opportunity, do you have an opportunity to do good for your neighbors, for your family, for your gospel community? What about the people? My, my heart breaks for the people. I was just talking with Jonathan about this this week. My heart breaks for the people that have been in moving and they're trying to find a community to become a part of and they're just isolated at home right now because there's, there's no one, they don't have any community here and the community they have is in some other state or some other zip code and they can't go visit them because of travel bans and everything else. What are the ways that you can do good for the people around you that stays true to the CDC recommendations, but how can you do good? What opportunities do you have? Is it just on social media? Is it, is it picking up the phone and doing what so many people don't do anymore and not texting but calling someone to have a phone conversation? What are the ways that we can take advantage of the opportunities? It goes on. It says, so as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone now. Everyone, just, just so you know, like everyone there is, is everyone, not just the people you like, not just the people it's convenient with, but everyone. And then he goes on and says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, serve each other. Look, it's a both and. We are to do the good for those that aren't in the church, but also to do good for those that are in the church. Live in light of the fact that this is who we are in the resurrection. Train, make it your life's purpose to live true to who you are going to be in the resurrection. Someone that, that always is abounding in the work of the Lord, that can grieve the, the loss of death because we know it's an enemy, but we grieve with someone that has hope. 
We don't need to fear anything that this world can come at us. No, no trial coming at us because we know that ultimately these trials are producing a steadfastness. If we can just remain under, we will be crowned in glory. Life makes sense when we live this way. It makes complete sense when we live this way. In speaking of the resurrection, Peter, in 2 Peter uh, verses, or chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, talking literally, in light of the resurrection, goes on and says, therefore, because the resurrection is coming, because, because ultimately you know that you will be a part of the victory over death in the following up of the first fruits who Jesus Christ is, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for that, for these, so since we're waiting for the resurrection, if you're, if you're going to wait anyways, he says this, he says what? Sit down on your couch, be as binge watcher of Netflix. No, that's not what he says. Says just because you're waiting, spend all the time you can building a nice nest egg for retirement. No, 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 no. He goes, be diligent. That means strive. Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Guys, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't know if maybe some of you are wrestling right now to be at peace. We can be at peace knowing that ultimately the resurrection is coming. And that there's diligence in us. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a, there's a way that we can labor today that has purpose and point. Because it's not just work that's done today that's going away and God's abandoning. No, he's renewing all things. He's bringing a new heaven and new earth where we get to we walk hand in hand, hang out with David and, and Abraham and Jesus and all those pillars of faith that we read about in, in Hebrews. We get to ask them questions about their life and talk about those things. And everything we do, everything we do, all the way down to the innermost thoughts that we have, will be fully known by everyone and will bring full glory to our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll be able to go visit the throne room of God anytime we want and we'll be able to hang out. It's just the resurrection is a beautiful thing. And it's telling us that today you and I have work to do. So let's be the hope. Let's be the church that is the hope. Let's not, let's not wait because today, as, as long as we have opportunity today, let's do good. Let's, let's do good to, uh, to everyone that comes in contest. Let's be the church that, that knows that in, that in spite of everything else that's happening in this world, we don't need to look to the news to tell us how to feel. We don't even need to, to put up some funny memes to tell us how to feel. We feel hope and joy and peace and patience and kindness because we have the fruit of the Spirit in us and we know that ultimately that our, our joy is complete and full in remaining true to who God is and obeying his words. Your labor is not in vain. So let's take this resurrection and let's live in light of this resurrection. Let's, let's steward the things that God has given us to steward well. And let's use everything we have from every single fiber in this decomposing body to every single possession that we have our hands on for a second. Everything is an opportunity to abound in the work of the Lord and to do good. Let's do that, church. Let's be that church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are still um, moving. You are still building your church in spite of the fact that um, there are many people that aren't even gathered together. Um, God, for, for your children, for your Christians, for those that bear your name, God, would you give them unity in this time? Would you give them strength? Would you give them peace? Would you help them endure? Would you help them see that this trial, this is just a trial that's, in, that's, that's, that's creating steadfastness, that's creating an immovability in us, a firmness in us, so that we can do more work for you. And God, I pray that we would pour ourselves, I pray that we would spend ourselves completely, not in the labor of our vocations, but in the labor of the Lord. In whatever ways we do it, God, we know you are good. We, pray f we praise you for your goodness. And God, I pray, that, I pray right now, I pray boldly, God, that you would, you would allow this, this time to be a time that your church shines the brightest.
however long it is, God, we trust you this time. For those that are grumbling or getting frustrated or, or lacking patience, God, I pray that they, your spirit would abound even more in them. And God, for those that don't know you, that are around all of us, that we get to be in closer proximity on a regular basis to our neighbors and every other situation like that, God, I pray that we, the church, would shine the brightest through this. And people would see the hope that comes in understanding that there is a resurrection, not just of Jesus Christ, but of every child of Jesus Christ, every child of you, God, as we are co-heirs of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.